Well, welcome everybody back to an episode of Compound Thesis. I'm Jim Hiltner. I'm the head of sales at Compound. Our guest today is Fabian Astek, and he's a managing director, the global head of DeFi and digital assets at Moody's Investor Services. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Jim. Happy to be here. Yeah, it's great to see you. So, um, you know, I'd love to kick off a little bit of background. You know, how did you get interested in DeFi and just share about like what's driving Moody's to look more closely into this space? Sure. So just before creating my new department last summer, I was responsible for quantitative analytics and innovation at Moody's uh, Investor Service, MIS in, in short. I use the acronym a lot. Uh, and with that innovation hat, my team and I monitored the blockchain and digital asset space for several years in passive monitoring mode, uh, as I like to say. But towards the end of 2021, we noticed that things really started to accelerate with some technical hurdles being solved and a lot of policy and regulatory work being done to solve the regulatory gap in the digital finance space. And that's when we decided to go from passive monitoring to active engagement as the uh, digitalization of financial markets was accelerating faster than before. So now is the time to get ready before uh, financial markets are fully digital. And today, digital finance is pretty much everywhere across the industry. The digitalization is illustrated by a pretty wide spectrum of activities and developments from investment in blockchain and uh, distributed, distributed ledger technology, or DLT in short, another acronym, to the tokenization of everything, bonds, stocks, real estate, art, you name it, to the creation of new assets like stable coins and CBDCs and NFTs and all the services to manage them, like custodians and exchanges, and sometimes with a centralized uh, design with more traditional intermediaries uh, like uh, you know exchanges and, and banks, and sometimes with decentralized designs uh, with no intermediaries, but only computers talking to each other with code automatically running when some pre-agreed uh, conditions are met. And there is a mix of old things and new things in that world, and really what we're doing at MIS with uh, the subject matter expertise of my department is to get ready and help market participants get ready to ensure that we are all well prepared as the market evolves. And that means first helping market participants understand all the new risks out there and how they interact with more traditional risks. And it also means getting ready as a business uh, to interact with our stakeholders digitally on DLT platforms when they want us to, which requires, among other things, a lot of process work, data and, and technology work, and of course, controls and, and risk management. So no need to apologize on all the acronyms where, you know, crypto and finance, you know, is famous for all the acronyms. So uh, easy to follow along. And I think a lot of the market structure as you're seeing it evolve in crypto is, is obviously, you know, mimicking a lot of the traditional financial infrastructure that's been built. As you mentioned, you know, exchanges, custodians, broker dealers, you name it. None of that is, is necessarily new, um, but it's certainly built on, on new rails. Um, and I'm curious, you know, just if you don't mind, like, you mentioned a lot of different stakeholders there. Uh, you know, can you tell us about you know some of the different types of uh, you know folks that you work with? Is it banks, asset managers, uh, insurance companies? You know, I'm sure you span a pretty wide gamut. But just curious, the types of clients that you that MIS is working with. So really, all of the above. Uh, and actually, it's interesting because uh, since we're talking to the entire market, uh, we've uh, we've even built the team. Uh, 
in a way to really respond to everything that's that's happening. So essentially our thinking was um, we can do things in a siloed way, uh, talking to pockets of uh, the market. We, we can create a group that goes into the future alone, leaving all the other uh, business units behind. And at the end of the day, uh, whether you're looking, for instance, at the credit risk of a traditional bond or that of a blockchain-based bond, a bond is a bond, rating is a rating, uh, and it will be assigned by our rating teams. And same thing for technology work and same thing for research and same thing for relationship management. <clears throat> so a lot of the uh, people that we talk to are the same as people we uh, have always talked to. There are new market participants, those that are specific to mm-hmm. uh, the digital finance world. Uh, and really what we needed was the expertise and the, the, the processes of all the departments in the organization. We really needed to get ready together two key ingredients, subject matter expertise and the participation of all the departments across the rating agency. And we did just that. So we first created my, my group, uh, DeFi and Digital Assets, bringing together subject matter experts um, and supporting knowledge building and driving strategy around digital finance, as well as coordination across Moody's, as well as outreach, uh, you know, to talk to everybody out there. Uh, in addition to the core team or center of excellence, I should say, my leadership team has um, senior leaders from all the departments of the rating agency, which is a way to ensure uh, shared accountability and smooth collaboration, and also to ensure that we're talking to all the right parties out there. And we also created a network of champions uh, within various departments, including our rating and research teams. And the champions are typically nominated first to design, lead, or support the implementation of uh, digital finance initiatives within their area of coverage. And they also serve as underground references for other employees. Yeah, fantastic. So, I mean, you mentioned uh, as your team is focused on the, the, the digital finance and the digitalization of financial markets. In your own words, what does that really mean? Can you break that down for us? Yes, I can. And I know it will sound like a broken record to people <laughs> who have heard me in other forums, but I, I think definitions are really important. So digital finance is the generic term that covers all aspects of finance that include DLT and digital assets. And I like to break it down into three buckets. The first bucket is digital infrastructure, or as I like to call it, modern back-end financial plumbing. And it's all the usual assets and transactions that we have uh, in traditional finance, really, but made more efficient and potentially cheaper by blockchain-like technologies. And in this bucket, you have things like digital bonds and asset tokens and security lending transactions and many others. The second bucket is native digital assets. And it's really all the new assets and structures that can only exist thanks to technologies like blockchain. And in that bucket, you have unbacked cryptocurrencies and native tokens and stable coins and central bank digital currencies and DeFi protocols. And then the third bucket is uh, digital exposure. So it's really all the existing kind of more traditional structures, but exposed to new risks and all the assets in uh, bucket two really. And it's for example, banks and asset managers and exchanges, but also non-financial organizations that are more and more exposed to digital assets and digital risks. And I like to use this classification because it makes it very easy when you talk to internal or external audiences uh, to explain that cryptocurrencies and crypto finance are just one component of digital finance. In particular, no cryptocurrencies are involved in the first bucket, 
uh, and crypto finance is really just a subset of digital finance, which involves cryptocurrencies. And decentralized finance or DeFi is an even smaller subset where only computers talk to each other and the, the usual uh, uh, companies and intermediaries are out of the equation. So in that in that first bucket, as you look at you know the the efficiencies that blockchain technology will bring to capital markets, can you highlight a few examples of you know exciting opportunities that you're seeing that are, might transform you know the financial markets across what a, you know choose your favorite asset class? <laughs> sure. Uh, well, first it's really what you just said. It's really all about efficiency, and uh, today's financial infrastructure is often slow and it's expensive and it's supported by legacy systems. And you have a lot of manual steps and many parties uh, are involved along the way in everything that we do in finance. So it's slow, uh, it costs a lot of money and blockchain, blockchain technology or actually DLT more broadly reduces the number of uh, intermediaries, the number of manual steps, uh, downtime, and it actually goes beyond finance. For instance, some manufacturing firms are considering mm. blockchain to improve the traceability of goods and commodities across the whole supply chain. The adoption of uh, DLT didn't pick up as fast as many expected a few years ago because of a few hurdles uh, that were not uh, foreseen. But we still believe that the technology can help, for instance, banks uh, modernize their legacy systems by reducing settlement time and automating manual processes, reducing um, error handling and enhancing reporting. So it often works with smart contracts, which I actually referred to earlier without naming them when I talked about code uh, automatically running when some pre-agreed conditions are met. And with those smart contracts, you can, for instance, automate payments and cash flows. Things like if price XYZ reaches $100, make a payment of $90 from Bob to John, or if all the values of a given report are in compliance with pre-agreed amounts, transfer digital token ABC to Jane. Mm -hmm. And with features like that, settlement times, which I mentioned earlier, can be reduced from several days to just a few minutes or even a few seconds, which can in turn improve customer service and reduce the cost of counterparty risk management and also ultimately a bunch of other costs. So banks and other uh, uh, financial institutions and other institutions really can use all of that. They can set up uh, immutable and transparent data records, which facilitates reporting and compliance efforts. Well, now, before I give you another uh, few examples of things that we're seeing, uh, we have to be realistic. Uh, yeah. All of this necessitates significant investments. Uh, it may cannibalize existing profitable divisions. And there's also... Um, issues with interoperability, which means that you may not be able to have all the stakeholders that you need in your DLT environment, uh, and uh, your DLT environment may not be compatible with uh, the DLT environment of others. So it will take some time before DLT's positive uh, effects are significant and measurable, but the work is continuing. And uh, even though banks have been very cautious with respect to cryptocurrencies, and we expect them to continue to be cautious until there are clear regulatory frameworks helping them prudently and safely engage in the sector. But apart from that crypto space, banks have been experimenting with many aspects of DLT and the various ways to make things more efficient that I mentioned before. And another example, uh, which we have seen several times over the past few years, is blockchain-based bonds. 
Mm. We actually just read another one a week or two ago and a couple of others a few weeks before that towards the end of last year. There's also trend finance, which is a very promising area for DLT because of the high volume of uh, paperwork and multiple parties involved along the way. And maybe finally, um, asset managers uh, have entered the ecosystem as well. Uh, some of them offer crypto investment services, but we don't expect them uh, to be a major uh, revenue driver yet. And some asset managers have uh, started to use blockchain technology to tokenize private investment uh, investments. And it's also a, a pretty nascent development, but it's definitely worth keeping an eye on the sector. Lots to stay on top of uh, and touching many different areas. But I think one of the things that's interesting about, you know, blockchain technology or DLT is the, the ability for, um, you know, just radical transparency in financial markets. And often a lot of the, you know, transactions are, are hidden behind, uh, behind walls, which, you know, certainly, uh, you know, obfuscates certain activities uh, on purpose. And the privacy is, is, you know, necessary in certain instances. But, you know, how do you think like institutions are balancing that trade-off between, you know, radical transparency and the privacy needed um, you know, as they manage, you know, certain risks on their balance sheet or, or certain transactions. And um, just curious your thoughts on that uh, trade-off. Sure. Uh, so there's probably a number of ways to, uh, to answer the question. Well, first, a lot of the um, work that we see done by financial institutions um, is on private blockchains mm -hmm. or hybrid blockchains. So not everything is public, but certainly when it comes to uh, public blockchains, um, cyber risk is key. And just uh, as an example, in 2023, I think roughly $3 billion were lost in the sector because of uh, cyber attacks. So think about it, like the entire ecosystem is uh, uh, relying on a series of te technical layers, you have user interface, you have smart contracts that I mentioned before, you have hardware, and each part is susceptible to vulnerabilities. Mm. So blockchain technology, again, when you think about it, it's a bunch of computer code and it's all web-based. So almost by definition, it's subject to cybersecurity and public blockchains even more so because by design, they're public, mm -hmm. that you can see the code of the projects, uh, which creates more opportunities for hackers to read the code and find ways to get in and they can exploit uh, flaws in the code or even in the business logic itself. So on the positive note, um, hacks against centralized finance businesses like crypto exchanges have declined. But the other way around, cyber attacks against uh, DeFi applications, financial platforms that essentially uh, enable participants to interact with uh, intermediaries, just computers talking to each other, those DeFi attacks have increased since 2021. And overall, the ecosystem is not really standardized uh, yet, which makes it hard to put in place systematic cybersecurity rules. But things can be done to significantly mitigate cybersecurity, cyber, cyber risk. Um, and some security firms offer, for instance, uh, third-party audits, which can help mm -hmm. patch some vulnerabilities at the time of the audit. But efficacy seems to vary from an audit to another. Um, other ways to reduce cyber risk include adhering strictly to coding best practices and partner partnering with incident uh, response teams. It's not really clear that small projects, in particular in the pure DeFi, like startup world, 
um, systematically follow all those steps, but large projects, and in particular those sponsored by large global financial institutions, are likely more rigorous with those practices, in particular because they have more money to spend on things like cybersecurity and code quality. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the, you know, the longer that these systems, uh, you know, continue to develop and because it is public and these exploits and or hacks are, you know, seen in real time, um, there's a lot of learnings that come out of those, those painful episodes and, um, you know, certainly uh, anticipate, you know, further hardening of these systems based off of, you know, recent activities. I think the other thing too, is that um, you know, being able to understand, like, there are a number of service providers that look at uh, these protocols from a risk management perspective, and are also under underwriting or analyzing the, you know, ability to manipulate a particular market, like we saw with like the mango hack back last year, there's a lot of inf information and, and insight and, um, you know, learnings from that episode, um, that I think a lot of other protocols will take into consideration as they continue to build their markets and think about what type of levers, not just from like a code perspective, but also from a risk management perspective, can we implement um, to reduce or eliminate those types of uh, those types of opportunities uh, for exploiters in the future. So uh, continue to evolve. And, you know, despite all that's happened in the last you know, a couple of years, there's still a tremendous amount to go and it's still a very nascent industry. Yeah. Um, one thing that you touched on earlier that I thought was interesting is, you know, just the efficiency that this produces, you know, reduces not only barriers to access, but also the costs of, you know, certain financial products. And so, um, you know, a lot of advocates talk about financial inclusion of, as one of the benefits to this innovation. Uh, you know, is this really the case? Can you elaborate, you know, any, any specific examples that you can point to where where this is helping reduce friction for, you know, consumers or businesses or um, individuals to uh, participate in the financial ecosystem that previously were not available to them? Sure. So I, I don't think it's that obvious for all areas of digital finance, but it's likely true for some applications like payment systems and uh, cross-border payments in particular. Mm. Because, for example, transferring money globally is slow and expensive and uh, making those transfers uh, cheaper and more efficient matters to a lot of people. According to the UN, roughly one person out of nine, I believe, relies on money sent back home by migrant workers. And approximately 7% of that money goes into fees. Uh, and it can take up to several days for a single dollar to go from the US to another part of the world. Uh, and it's not just for global payments. Last year, the White House released a fact sheet uh, stating that roughly 7 million Americans have no bank account and that another 24 million have to rely on costly non-bank services like money orders. And blockchain in the digital finance can help with financial inclusion thanks to you know faster and more convenient and lower cost transactions, uh, uh, like I mentioned before. So that's all the efficiencies that, that uh, we, we covered previously. And essentially, pretty much as soon as you have a cell phone, you have access to financial services that you may not have access to otherwise. Some digital assets like stable coins and or central bank digital currencies could really help with that. Uh, stable coins, which are still a very small market today, it's under $150, $150 billion, uh, they're mainly used to trade cryptocurrencies without having to convert your trades into fiat money back and forth. So it saves you know, time and, 
and money, and they're also used as collateral in uh, in crypto lending lending programs. But stable coins have the potential to become an efficient global payment system, and that's why there's a lot of policy work being done on the topic today. Well, it w- I would be remiss not to take the last you know nugget that you're just dropping there on. Try to get your insight a little bit on regulation and policymakers. Uh, you know, uh, obviously, there's a, a lot of discussion given all that's happened and some progress uh, being made. Especially, it seems like the stablecoin bill is is kind of like top of mind, at least in the U.S. But I know you have a global remit, so we just kind of love to get a sense of uh, the regulatory landscape and what you're what you're seeing, what we should expect coming in this year or or you know in the not too distant future. Sure. Uh, well, there's a lot to say. Yeah, I'll try to be brief. Uh, we could do a whole sep- We could do a whole separate episode on that. <laughs> but I'll start with the EU because there's quite a comprehensive framework uh, in uh, in the EU that's about to kick in. Uh, first, in March of this year, so just a few weeks from now, uh, their DLT pilot regime will go into effect, and it's essentially a regulatory DLT sandbox, which will allow all sorts of activities related to tokenized uh, financial instruments, including issuance and storage and trading and settlement. And the other big piece of uh, legislation in the EU is uh, MICA, the Markets and Crypto Assets uh, Regulatory Framework, which the European Parliament is expected to vote on within the next few months, possibly in April. And it will be effective in uh, 2024, but you'll start to see the effects before as everybody is getting ready for the effective date in, uh, in, uh, in 2024. And among other things, MECA sets um, redemption and reserve rules for stable coins. And it also uh, limits the volume of uh, non-EU currency denominated stable coins, which is an interesting bet, which can either accelerate innovation and push for uh, the creation of new euro stable coins there. But if it fails, uh, given that the vast majority of uh, stable coins today are in USD, it could also limit the fuel in the EU uh, crypto ecosystem. And the rest of MICA covers capital requirements and other governance rules for crypto asset uh, service providers. On the other side of the channel, uh, there is quite a lot happening as well in the UK. Uh, In July of last year, the first crypto regulation was introduced with the Financial Services and Markets Bill. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's not final yet, but in its current state, it's different from MECA in the EU as it only provides uh, general guidance for stablecoins as opposed to specific rules. And there will be a consultation period once the bill's passed. And after that, uh, the Treasury and the Bank of England and others will set the actual rules. And, uh, and the bill will also address um, uh, a DLT regulatory sandbox. There's also quite a lot happening in Asia, including Hong Kong and Singapore and South Korea and Japan with uh, various initiatives to regulate digital assets and crypto finance. And last but not least, uh, here in the US, uh, there's been a lot of, um, of activity as well, but no real conclusion yet as illustrated by the very high number of bills Mm. in the last Congress, often bipartisan, but um, that didn't conclude and essentially everything reset with uh, the new Congress. On the one hand, there is a sense of urgency uh, following a number of events that you're really familiar with uh, 
which took place in the crypto world uh, last year and this year, including, of course, the collapse of FTX. And policymakers and regulators focus on protecting uh, consumers and financial uh, stability. Uh, there was a real sense of bipartisanship on these questions last year. And my guess is that there will be some bipartisan agreements this year too. Now, will there be a comprehensive framework for crypto finance and the broader digital finance field in 2023? Probably not, at least uh, until all the events of last year are fully investigated and, and uh, mainly settled. But in the meantime, we expect more targeted efforts like stable coins again. Uh, and it seems that Congressman Patrick McHenry and Congresswoman Maxine Waters are close to reaching a, a bipartisan agreement. For the time being, uh, with no crypto legislation out there, uh, U.S. regulatory bodies will continue to increase pressure on the crypto industry. And both the SEC and the CFTC have been pretty active. Uh, and maybe one final note on uh, pure DeFi. Uh, it is notably not in scope anywhere. Uh, mm -hmm. There are already calls to include the sector in future uh, regulation or future legislation, but it's not in the frameworks that I mentioned earlier. And we are very likely many years away from a regulatory framework for DeFi, which, by the way, may look very different from regulatory frameworks in the rest of crypto finance. And for example, rules like reserve requirements and leverage and I don't know, other governance considerations may be embedded in the code of DeFi protocols. But in the meantime, what we've seen with recent actions by the CFTC and the SEC is that regulators are nonetheless uh, keeping an eye on the sector. And if some bad actors try to exploit design flaws or weaknesses in DeFi protocols to steal money, they will, they will likely be prosecuted. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, profitable trading strategies don't go unpunished, apparently. Um, so lots to come. And I think the industry, as you know, you probably see in all of your conversations, and, and we certainly do on our end as well, certainly welcome the clarity and, you know, the collaboration with regulators. It will take some time to, to get through, but it's good to see, you know, on a global front um, that there is progress being made, uh, despite all of the kind of headwinds that potentially could, you know, stall some of the progress, given all that's happened over the last, you know, call it six months since I joined crypto, coincidentally, joined uh, right before Terra Luna collapsed and have seen, uh, you know, quite a bit of change over the last, you know, eight months uh, since being in the industry. But it's been uh, it's been great to, to have this conversation with you today. I'm very excited for, you know, folks like yourself that are continuing to do the great work you're doing. Um, really appreciate it. We'll definitely have to uh, have you on again at some point and, and kind of see where the world uh, lands. We spin the globe behind you a couple more times and uh, you know see what crypto looks like in, in a few turns. But uh, appreciate everybody joining for today's episode. Uh, we'll be back again in a few weeks with another great guest. Talk soon. Thanks, Bevian. Thank you.